Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio, and you're listening to Money Talks. This week we'll be digging deeper into today's big news, the EU's 13 billion euro ruling against the tech giant Apple. Apple's uh, tax benefits in Ireland are illegal. This is an unusual use of that mechanism and that's one of the things that makes it controversial. And our free exchange columnist Ryan Avent will be joining us to discuss work, status and technological disruption. These programs can get better much faster then humans can improve their skills. So even if it's not competition now, maybe in a decade or two, it, it will begin to be. This morning brought bad news for Apple as the EU Commission recommended its highest ever tax penalty, advising Ireland to recover a staggering €13 billion Euro in what it's termed illegal aid. Two tax rulings uh, granted by Ireland have artificially reduced Apple's tax burden for over two decades in breach of EU state aid rules. The ruling follows an investigation that's lasted three years and it marks a potential milestone in the relationship between the tech giant and the European taxman. Joining me now down the line is our special assignments editor, Matthew Valencia. So Matthew, first of all, how did Apple accrue such a huge debt to the Irish taxpayer, allegedly? Well, the case refers back to a number of tax agreements that Ireland struck with Apple dating back to the early 1990s. And what the European Commission alleges is that these deals were done on preferential terms, that they were essentially sweetheart deals that other companies, particularly domestically focused companies, were not able to get terms as attractive, and that as a result, uh, Apple saved huge amounts on on what, what its tax bill should have been, and owes that amount as a result. And was this ruling a surprise? No, it wasn't. The Commission began its investigations three years ago. It issued an initial ruling two years ago, which essentially said there was something wrong with the arrangements between Apple and Ireland. So it was very widely expected that it would come out with a tough ruling with the, the final opinion, which is what, what, what has come out today. And Ireland seems rather reluctant to accept this decision. Why is that? Yes, well, it it may seem strange to some people that the government is being asked to uh, recover large amounts of money, and yet it seems reluctant to do so. And part of the reason for that is that it's it's very worried, it seems, that this will have a chilling effect on investment. It's concerned that, that other investors will look at this and worry that they won't have certainty when they enter into um, arrangements with the Irish government. And so it, it's very reluctant to have to collect a large amount of money, which in most circumstances you'd think they would be delighted to have. And how legitimate is it for the European Commission to come in and say, we think that you should repay something, which seems to have been done in accordance with rules at the time? Yes, well, this is really quite controversial because Apple struck a deal with the sovereign government. The government itself seemed to be happy with that deal and obviously is standing by it. 
And here you have the Commission coming in and saying, no, this was wrong, and looking for a way to find it illegal and going through a route which is, is really quite unusual um, to use state aid arguments as they do in a tax case involving an individual company is more than highly unusual and the, the Commission hasn't done it before. Can I ask you if it is state aid? Because you may say that it sounds like state aid, but it's not a classic state aid agreement, is it? No, it's not indeed. I mean, um, this isn't a subsidy given to a domestic company, a national champion, in the cases that we normally see involving state aid. This is an unusual use of that mechanism, and that's one of the things that makes it controversial. Another one is that the theories that the Commission is, is using in this case, for instance, with regard to what's called transfer pricing rules, which are the rules that govern the price at which transactions are made between subsidiaries of multinational companies. And these rules are are very much at the centre of a lot of tax avoidance cases. The interpretation of those rules by the Commission in this case is coming into question, and Apple itself has said that it thinks the Commission has looked at them in in an incorrect way. I suppose it's not surprising that Apple are objecting vehemently, but what would you guess that the consequences will be for the EU's relationship with the US and with other American companies? Really quite serious, I think. Uh, The United States uh, Treasury came out a couple of weeks ago and issued a white paper in which it heavily criticised, lambasted the European Commission over the case. It clearly thinks that the Commission is picking on American companies and also that its arguments don't stack up. So this has the potential to really drive a wedge between Europe and America on tax issues and potentially even start some sort of a tax war. And that's particularly worrying because they've been working together on multilateral reforms to the international tax system. And those reforms probably offer the best hope of doing something about all of the kind of rampant um, and aggressive tax avoidance that's been going on. So, you know, that really is quite worrying. Apple have suggested this will harm job creation and growth. Do we agree with that? And do we broadly think that Apple have got a solid defence here? Yes, I think I think Apple does have a, a strong defence in this case. It's certainly true that, that Apple and other large multinationals have engaged in some, some pretty aggressive tax avoidance. But the way to fix that is to focus on changing the rules at a multinational level. And for the European Commission to come out unilaterally and, and with arguments which in many regards don't stack up, I think it's going to be open to criticism, quite rightly. And I think this will definitely increase uncertainty for companies uh, investing in Europe. There are going to be big questions now about whether arrangements that they've made with governments will stand up in future. This uh, opinion by the European Commission is very retroactive and it goes back 25 years. So companies will probably be looking back now over quite a long period of time and wondering whether they're going to get a knock on the door too. Matthew Valencia, thank you very much. And what do you think about the ruling? Should Apple stump up the cash or should the EU get its nose out of Ireland's tax affairs? Do let us know on Twitter at Economist Radio or via email to radio at economist.com. Next we ask, what is the future of work? Advances in technology have brought about a massive change in the way we work. But the optimism surrounding the digital revolution is met with an equal amount of doom and gloom. Many people worry that automation will not only drive up unemployment, but depress wages and possibly drive up inequality further too. So how do we manage the negative effects of technology on our economy? Ryan Avent, our free exchange columnist, joins me now from a studio in Washington to discuss his new book, Wealth of Humans, Work and Its Absence in the 21st Century. 
So, Ryan, your book begins with an excerpt from an article you wrote for The Economist back in 2014. And in the next paragraph, there's another article written by a news bot. We should mention this article appeared in another paper. It seems that no field is immune to automation, then not even journalism, she said tentatively. Uh, How far reaching is this digital revolution? Well, I think it's quite far-reaching indeed. And uh, as the book explains, there's this advance in digital technology that we, we refer to generally as machine intelligence or artificial intelligence. And it's really something that can be applied in many different areas of the economy. It can write stories that sound like they're written by a human. It can drive cars. Uh, it can power kind of Google's search technology. Its applications are almost endless. And that has pretty significant implications for for human workers and for what they're going to to need to do to prepare for the future. Well, let's unpack the news bot. I really can't resist doing that. The the tendency, I think, when people are confronted by something like that and whatever their field and analysis journalism is to say, that will never be able to write the beautiful article I have just written or make the beautiful radio show I'm making. At the same time, there's always an edge of fear, isn't there? Well, what if what if it does? You know, what will then happen to me? And did the newsbot example give you pause for thought? Well, it certainly did. I mean, I think you're absolutely right, though, that a lot of people look at these sorts of, of programs and say, you know, there's so many things, so many sort of nuances to human speech or human writing that a program can't hope to duplicate. And so doesn't that offer us some protection? And I think what I try to argue in the book is two things, really. One is that these programs can get better much faster than humans can improve their skills. Uh, So even if it's not competition now, maybe in a decade or two, it it will begin to be. And the other thing is that the the share of humans who can do the really kind of intricate, nuanced reporting, uh, that amazing storytelling uh, that can't be done by computers is much smaller than the share that kind of works in more... Um, routine kind of writing tasks, writing technical reports or basic memos and things like that. And those things are much more susceptible to automation. So the, the kinds of things that really employ lots and lots of people, unfortunately, are the ones that are probably most at risk. And you liken the digital revolution to the industrial one. But the biggest difference that you point out is that we are less able to respond to the changes brought about by this revolution. Why is that? Well, that's absolutely right. In the Industrial Revolution, we had these fancy new machines that that replaced a lot of of work. Textile workers who had done things by hand were pushed aside by automated looms and things like that. Uh, But what we could do then uh, is we could move people to new and productive cities. We could take people off the farms where they'd received very little education, send them to schools, teach them maths and, and things of that nature. And suddenly they were prepared to fill roles in the economy that were created by these new technologies. There are still roles in the economy that are complementary to the digital technologies that we're seeing now, but they require much, much, much higher levels of education. And it's difficult to imagine that we could take the median worker who's at risk from displacement and send them through to a graduate course in computer science and engineering uh, so that they can fill those roles. So I think the the difficulty is in in mobilizing this, this mass of labor that's at risk and finding roles in the economy where they can work productively. You also say that the central fact of the digital revolution is an abundance of labor. What has the effect of this been on the economy and what do you see there as trend? I think that's absolutely right. And the effects show up in a few different places. I think one is that because there's such a kind of a glut of labor, the bargaining power that workers workers have relative to firms has decreased. So they've been able to take less of a share 
of the gains from from growth, and that shows up in inequality and in in the share of profits that's been accruing to capital owners. and the other thing we've seen, i think, is that as people and as this glut of labor, as these workers compete for new jobs, wages are stagnant, and that's bad for living standards. it also, ironically, has slowed the rate of investment. if you're a firm who has the pick of you know hundreds and hundreds of applicants, you feel less pressure to raise wages, and so you also feel less pressure to invest in technologies that could do the work uh, of more expensive labor. and so ironically, the digital revolution is has this self-limiting factor that goes along with it that means we're less rich than we ought to be because we're using humans when we could be using machines. I was watching the film High Rise recently based on a famously dystopian novel about a segmented society by J.G. Ballard, and it struck me that the kind of dystopianism that he's talking about also underlies a lot of our feelings about technology. Are you clear in your own mind what is a dystopian element in the way we think about technology and its impact, and what are the things we really need to get to grips with? Well, I think the Industrial Revolution provides a guide for us. And, you know, if you were in the 19th century looking at what was going on, uh, in a lot of ways, you, you should have been really optimistic because these are these new machines uh, were, were eventually going to create this fantastically new kind of lifestyle where everyone was much richer than they had been before, much healthier, lived longer lives, had more opportunity. Where the, the kind of pessimism creeps in is in the process of getting from point A to point B. You have to reorganize society so that everyone can enjoy these benefits from growth. You have to come up with new institutions, educational institutions, social safety nets, things of that nature to make sure that everyone is benefiting. And that process of coming up with that new social structure is a very contentious one. It involves lots of nasty political battles. And so I think that's the thing that I, we, we need to be worried about is, is how are we going to survive the transition? What are the solutions that we might be thinking about more in the next few years that are possibly just creeping onto our radar now? Well, I think one thing we should expect is for there to be much more redistribution. If wages are going to to lag for a lot of the workforce as they struggle to find employment, they're going to demand that politicians find ways to, to boost their living standards. And that's necessarily going to involve redistribution. That creates something of a problem because uh, what we'd also like to see, ideally, is, is people moving from places that are less productive, that are less able to take advantage of these technologies, to countries that are richer and that have more experience and more uh, are better able to use these digital technologies to good ends. So essentially, we'd like to see more immigration. But the more you redistribute within countries, I think the less willing people are going to be to allow migration. So you have this kind of fundamental tension that if you resolve kind of inequalities within countries, you exacerbate them across countries. Ryan Avent, not yet replaced by an analysis bot. Thank you very much. You can keep up with Ryan's free exchange column in this week's issue. That's it for Money Talks this week. In London, this is The Economist. 